Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. We have our old friend Richard back. back old friend. That's not a chronological. I was comment, thinking more like old as an O L, just our old oh, buddy. Oh, okay. Not a reference to your age. <laughs> but we've got a we've got an audience today. Uh, we're at my parents' house. My mom's over there. Hello, mom. Hi, mom. And uh, we also have Mike Cope here, just yeah. hanging out. Just watching you guys. There's a microphone in front of him. He thinks he's not going to use it, but I know he might. He will jump in. He how, might, he's my former preacher, so we can all blame him for how I've turned out. That's a yeah. That's a fair fair statement. My, I have successes and failures. Yeah, that's past, right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of failures, Jonathan Stormont. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I was in my Thursday lunch group uh, yesterday. Uh, five people from our church, and uh, someone somehow got on the subject of your book, The Authenticity of Faith. And they said that they almost became an atheist halfway through that book. And they've since given it to a bunch of people because they really like it. But there's a moment in the middle where they almost became atheists. So I just want to say thank you for causing that formation to happen. Bringing people to the brink of faith, yeah. Do you think this new book will have that same effect on people? Push anyone closer to atheism? (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. I hope not. But no, the authenticity of faith... I, I, that's a book I wish more people would read. I think there was a lot of things I said in it. I don't think it's a well, uh, well-written book. I don't think I... I wish I had another crack at it. And so that might be a book I would write, like more for a popular audience, like Stranger God or Reviving Old Scratch. Yeah. But I think the, the big point about how to move through doubt, um, but to see the positive side of that, because I think it ends on a hopeful note by saying that, yeah. that people who struggle with doubts are often the best ambassadors to a secular world yeah. because they're, you know, they're more tolerant and hospitable to difference. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think it ends well. So I, I'm glad. That, hopefully I've, they got to the end of the I've, book. I've said this multiple times in the podcast, but the first half of that book is why I started the podcast. Because I was like, I want to talk to Richard about this. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite things you've written. And obviously now you're writing more poppy stuff. So I... Um, I would like to see a poppy version of that. Like, I mean that in a good way. Like, I feel like I write yeah. pop level stuff. I pitched it to a couple publishers, but they've often picked other things. But I think it's worth. And I think the whole summer winter Christian thing, which Mike Mike uh, has done a lot of stuff on as well, um, needs a popular exposition. Yeah. Um, well, I, Mike has been saying he's going to write a book for I don't know years at this point. ABCs of Christianity at one point was a, an idea he's pitching around. Is that? Do you think that's ever going to happen, Richard? Do you think he's going to finish that book? He's already written books. I'm sure he can do it. Okay, I just think... <laughs> I'm baiting him. He's not coming in. He's, he's holding off on that one. Okay, we're getting close. When, when, <laughs> when I saw the title, uh, Stranger God, um, and I know that you're doing more pop stuff, Tony Jones is your editor with Fortress Press, I was wondering if this really was going to be an expose on the theology of Stranger Things. Because I know you're going pop level. That would be super pop level. How much of this book is inspired by that Netflix show? Stranger Things? <laughs> yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. I think reviving old scratches, though, because uh, speaking of Jonathan, Jonathan and I have talked a lot about. We just actually watched Stranger Things two together, and so we went back and forth to each other's houses to watch it because he both he and I are really interested in this whole disenchanted, enchanted conversation. Yeah, and so Stranger Things, the phenomenon around it, suggests that maybe we're not as disenchanted as we think. We're still yeah. kind of craving for um, enchantment in many ways, but it expresses itself in those you know, popularity of those kinds of shows or whatever. So, yeah. 
But this book is not about Stranger Things. Oh, I just feel like you need to set the expectations for your future listeners or readers. Uh, When you watch a TV show with Jonathan, does his mouth just stay open for good chunks of it? Because I've seen him watch himself on video, and he just does that. He's very excited. What's it like watching a TV show with Jonathan? I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. I, I, my mouth is open right now. I don't know. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We, had a, we, had a, we, we both were a little scared. I think we're both very not... Because this one has a little bit more horror in it. Stranger Things too. Yeah. And so we, I think we both discovered that we're both... Uh, we, we get frightened yeah. a little bit. I watched uh, the Batman vs. Superman movie with Jonathan. And he had like his... I think the kid was like four years old at the time watching that movie. Uh, so that was really fun, watching one of Jonathan's worst parenting moments uh, happen right in front of my eyes. Uh, would you take your kid to watch a Batman vs. Superman movie? At that age? Yeah. Oh, I would think through it, right? It was yeah. like PG-13, I think. Right? It might have been R for all I know. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that's another... But st- Superman's big for Jonathan. Like, that, like yeah. Superman is, like, was his hero of childhood. So I can see why he would be tempted yeah. to take his kids to it. Yeah, well... Um, but this is a grimmer Superman. It was. This is not the Christopher Reeve Superman. There was a scene where uh, there's someone who vandalized a statue of Superman and it said, uh, Superman's a false god. I think I saw a tear roll down Jonathan's <laughs> eye when that happened. His idolatry was exposed. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of strange things, Jonathan being strange, the book title is <laughs> Stranger God. I feel like that's my transition to the book. Okay. Um, okay, so this is kind of... You do some of the unclean stuff in this book. You reference some of that. You do the um, object permanent stuff with the Hitler sweater, which is always a crowd pleaser. That's a great illustration. That is a crowd pleaser. Do you use that one a lot? I've used it multiple I use it times all the time. Yeah, because it's a way, when people hear about discussing contamination, their initial, their initial reaction is, I don't really feel that. Like, I, I don't understand that. It, it, mm-hmm. it's, but if you begin with that, illustration about how people would be uncomfortable if they were told that they could put on Hitler's sweater that and they wouldn't want to do it they would feel some sort of hesitance or weird or icky about it that it quickly illustrates them how we kind of conflate morality with a virus or a a contamination and so it's a real quick way to kind of get people to go oh I kind of get it I see how we that we have a moral evaluation that it activates a kind of revulsion or disgust psychology and plus it's just hilarious i mean it's just a fascinating you know do you uh, like that one more than the spit in the cup thing no i use that one all the the time too so i use the dixie cup experiment which is um we don't mind swallowing the saliva in our mouth but if we were asked to spit it dixie cup and re-drink it we find that problematic And, and so i use that to illustrate kind of the boundary monitoring aspects of uh disgust and revulsion or whatever yeah, but but the, yeah, this book is in many ways a popular version of Unclean. Alive mm-hmm. it is, um, but it but it's it goes further than Unclean because Unclean didn't end with a lot of very practical steps. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of makes a kind of a call for Eucharistic theology, but as far as day to day practices, it, it never said much. And so I felt a need to write something that would kind of complete the circle, kind of raise the problems that Unclean Clean raises, but then kind of maybe offers some solutions to it as well. Yeah, when you're saying popular level, it's Heavy on stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's application to it, which um, is something that maybe the previous books didn't lean a whole lot into. It, is it difficult to make that transition for you? 
Well, yeah, the origin of the book was, is so I, when I'd go to, tr- Unclean was the, is the book that I get invited most to talk about with churches, because most mm-hmm. churches are trying to be hospitable, they're trying to welcome the stranger, they're trying to be missional, and yet they discover that it's really hard. You know, preachers make the call for missionality mm-hmm. or hospitality, and then they realize that you know people aren't flocking to do that. And so something's going wrong. And so people have discovered Unclean, and they've noticed that maybe maybe attending to the social psychology, maybe that's where it's all going wrong. It's not a theological problem anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a psychological problem. It's an affectional, emotional problem by, by how we react to strangers. So I get called to, to talk a little bit about that, to kind of illuminate those dynamics. But the only book that you know churches could recommend to their readers would have been unclean and i remember vividly at a church where i was doing equipping sessions a little old lady accosted me in the aisle and she goes why is your book so hard (laughs) and 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 she like literally gave me a what's for like just really just ripped me up and down the aisle because she couldn't understand it and i apologized said ma'am i'm very sorry i said i didn't wasn't written really for a general church audience and that was the beginning in my mind, I said, I got I to gotta figure out a way to unpack this so mm-hmm. that a church um, could just hand that out or they could do a Bible study with it. And then, um, but the ideas were basically out there. But it, yeah, it's a transition because I, I started writing in, in academics and you're trying to shift to a popular general audience. And you, it's been a learning experience. But I think I got the hand of it. Reviving Old Scratch was my first attempt at it. And this one was a little easier. Yeah. I, I've heard people say if you want to write a good book, you have to live a good life. And the, I think the reason you can transition from academic to pop is because you have stories, like incarnational examples of these ideas being lived out. Uh, and so if you're not that good of a person, it's difficult to make that transition because most of us don't have stories about going out to prisons and uh, doing Freedom Church stuff. And so that's nice. For, I'm glad that you have both of those that you yeah. can lean into. Uh, you also talk about how going out uh, to... French Robert, French Roberts, French Robertson, Robertson prison wasn't just about you helping. It was really about you finding your faith. Yeah. So the, the reason I went out to the prison and the reason I started going to freedom fellowship for, for people don't know my story, um, where, um, and Mike, you know, was the preacher at the time when we started that church and was influential in helping us make that decision to kind of start a little church mission church in a very poor part of our town. But yeah, um, I, my faith was kind of at a low ebb. I probably had read the book authenticity of faith and almost <laughs> lost my faith halfway through the book. And, uh, how, how much of that was because of the preaching you heard on every, <laughs> every Sunday? Yeah, no. Highland is Highland has been great. Highland has during Mike's tenure there was a great place to be because it, because Mike was very welcoming to people like me who had lots of questions, lots of doubts, and so Highland. How do you think been, he was welcoming? Well, I think Mike um, and I can't speak for him. You know, his own. He was very honest about his own his own journey and um, and allowed a lot of us to kind of you know live into our questions and our doubts and not see those as always problematic. Um. But after a while, though, and we, you and I have talked about this before, after a period of kind of deconstruction, kind of once you kind of pair everything back, it's, it's, something's going to give at that point. And I think faith becomes, faith is heavy for many of us. And if we deconstruct it to make it lighter and lighter and lighter, sometimes it gets so light it just floats away. And I, and I think you see that trend with lots of people. But some of us, I think, at that point realize, okay, I'm, if I'm going to stay... If, if there's anything of value here, then at some point I need to make 
um, a turn or a change. And yeah. so that's that second naivete. That's the reconstruction. And, and what prompts somebody to leave faith or turn back towards it at that point? I don't know. I think that's a great mystery in many ways. But for me, um, I felt like I needed to, to make that turn. And, and so one of the things that I decided to do is I just felt like I needed to live into the things I had written about, like in Unclean. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I literally remember the very first podcast I did after writing Unclean, and somebody said to me, so, so this is a great book, and you've, you know, the Hitler sweater and the Dixie Cup stuff is all fascinating. So how have you lived into these practices? And at the time, I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, uh, I don't really do that. <laughs> so, so I felt like I needed to kind of practice what I was preaching a little bit. And, and the big surprise for me was that um, – in moving and living in those spaces that faith came back to me in many ways in, in the friendships I had made on the margins. Yeah. You go out to the prison and they ask, what are you doing out here? And you said Matthew 25, like you really, Jesus juked him, gave him a Bible verse. I did. How did I, that I remember, you know, so the guys, after the first couple of weeks, I was going out there and leading that Bible study. Uh, we were really enjoying ourselves, but at some point early on, they just stopped me and just said, you know, what, what, like, what are you getting out of this? Like you're out here for two hours um, total for the study, but it takes 30 minutes to get out there and get out of there. Um, it's not an easy place to get into or out of. And so it's a three hour commitment every Monday night. And they were like, you know, you have a family, you can mm-hmm. be doing a lot, you know, there's Monday night football. Like what, what's, yeah. what are you doing out here? And I said, well, uh, I shared kind of a little bit of my faith story. And I said, yeah, Matthew 25. I said, I don't see myself at that time as a person of great faith, bringing God into, I didn't have a very evangelistic fervor to do it. I said, um, I think Jesus promised that I'd find him out here if I visited the prisoner, and I have, and, and hmm. I've, in many, many ways that they have become um, my greatest encouragers over me. Like I, last summer, I went overseas to England to, to a variety of speaking engagements. So hello, everybody um, in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and they just gathered around. I told them I was going to be gone for a couple of weeks, and it was, it was a bit of a leave-taking. And they just gathered around me and prayed over me, and, and I promised to tell their stories. And so I'm kind of their apostle. They and they said, like your, you telling their stories? Yeah, they, yeah, they know. They know. I said I, my, my goal is to make them the most famous Bible study um, uh, in in the prison system, you know, mm. in the world. So I go out there and tell their stories, and I come back and tell them about how the things I've shared with with audiences has been changing people and making a difference in their lives. And um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So you go out there on Monday nights, three hours, and in the most unlikely place for some people, you find Jesus. Uh, Monday nights, I have a three hour commitment that occasionally I find Jesus in as well. It's uh, an elders meeting. Uh, <laughs> On Monday very, nights. Very similar to what you're doing. Uh, you, you tell a very humanizing story of. So you, the irony, I think, and <clears throat> this is the, maybe the hook of the book, is that you don't expect to find Jesus in prisoners. But then you, you tell a story about a, a prisoner finding Jesus in the guards, who are just as unlikely in their perspective to be a divine source of light and love. And you tell this great story about a prisoner who can't walk his daughter down the aisle. And for, for some of us, you go, well, you deserve that. You're in prison. And the gesture of the the guards going out of their way to make that possible. It's a really beautiful story. Do you think the, your friends who are incarcerated out there um, have been able, I don't know how, it, it's got to be difficult for them to see anything good in the guards because the guards mm-hmm. are the bad guy in yeah. their story. But this guy is able to see 
God in those guards. Do you find the prisoners talking that way? No, that that's what was so surprising about it and and shocking about it because uh, you would, that, uh, that makes sense. They're going to be have an antagonistic relationship with the guards um, for the most part. And and since I'm always, what's interesting about from just from social psychology is like because I'm always with the prisoners, I kind of have this halo around them, yeah. and you have to resist that a little bit or you lose track with reality. But you know, you, you kind of see them as the good guys, and and the guards are the people that are you know patting them down and. Interrupting this study because there's, you know, they got to make a count or something like that. So you you even see yourself buying into an identification with the prisoners against the guards because, and 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 you have to resist that as well. So again, it's this insidious thing. It's it's nobody notices they're cultivating biases, but we're always leaning towards people Mm -hmm. and away from other kinds of people. And in those little subtle affectional tilts of our heart. scale up and they cause us to not welcome certain people not and, and god is always surprising us in those in those very people so that's that's the shock of mr albert's story um the inmate that told us that is how the guards unexpectedly let him you know talk to his daughter before she would uh before walk she went to walk down the aisle on our wedding day and, and that caught him out of nowhere and kind of brought him to a moment of uh, confession and repentance wow. and and so, yeah, there's always that. God's always kind of surprising you, the least likely person in your life. Yeah, so you, one of the things that you say is the obstacle for hospitality is our ever-shrinking circles of affection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for me, my natural disposi- disposition would be, well, I don't want prisoners in my circle of affection. For prisoners, it wouldn't be, I, want, I don't want guards in my mm-hmm. circles of affection. Right. Um, and they also struggle with amongst themselves, right? Because there's huge ethnic... Yeah lines that divide them out there and, and we spend a lot of time um uh trying to get them to welcome each other across racial lines and gang lines and all those kinds of things that how they, does that work well not very well um that that uh, we come back that's probably the hard labor out there is is the to cast for them a vision that mm-hmm. that the church is, is trying to transcend all of that um but for them you know it's it's all tied up with safety it's not like they're it's not a social club. I mean, there's a degree of protection that those ethnic groups and gangs provide for them. And so that's the, my big struggle out there. If, if anybody's read Reviving Old Scratch, they know this story about how when you kind of call them to the way of Jesus out there, you're bringing in a dangerous aspect to them into their lives because they're going to be doing things that out there they could get really get punished for or hurt for. And... Uh, so that's the, that's the story it, I tell in Reviving Old Scratch about trying to tr- preach the Beatitudes out of the prison and realizing how hard that is and how, um, in many ways, I think the prison is a microcosm of the larger world. It just intensifies the kind of Darwinian struggle we find ourselves in, and the call to love is a really heroic thing to do. Yeah, like you said, it intensifies it, because for many of us, the fear of the stranger xenophobia is, I, I think evolutionary biologists will tell us, or psychologists will tell us that that develops from fear of strangers hurting them. Like if you stay mm-hmm. with people who look like you, they're more likely to be nice to you. And you know, you reference some of the political discourse of this day of you know building the wall, which often gets connected to the idea of those people are sources of fear for you. These yeah. are the rapists who are going to come destroy your life as you as you know it. And so the idea of hospitality seems like it's always pushing against that. And <clears throat> you uh, you talk about you have to have practices. To do that, it's not just I'm going to think about it, but it has to be practice that you intentionally do. For prisoners, it's one thing. Um, the practice, what that looks like for them. As you think about this uh, with 
your fellow Highland Church of Christ members, what do you think practice of hospitality look like for them, pushing against that fear? Right, yeah. So like after unclean ends um, with more, more questions than answers, it's mainly diagnostic. Like here's all these things that could go wrong emotionally in, in welcoming strangers. Um, but as I went to churches and diagnosed all that, they would they'd ask a very obvious question, which is, so how are we, how are we supposed to deal with all of that? Um, and um, you can you can point to liturgy. You can say there are things that we can do during our church services and, and the way we practice communion, and welcome people to table. And so I kind of make an advocate. I advocate for open communion, but not. But you know, two things. One, not all churches theologically or doctrinally can pull off open communion. They they have their own eucharistic yeah. practices. And second of all. Um, you're going to need something that you're going to have to practice kind of Monday through Saturday. It, just the practice of open communion isn't going to be enough of a lever yeah. to kind of pull to change these affectional, particularly if you're dealing with fear. If you're in a political climate, a lot of fear, open communion isn't the only thing going to do it. Plus, a lot of our churches are pretty homogeneous, so the people you're welcoming to the table are still people that kind of look like you. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of went on a journey. This The, the second half of the book in stranger god is this journey for me kind of looking for some practice practical thing to say to these churches because for a couple years i didn't have anything really practical say you could give examples you know be like you know be like this person or that person but sometimes those exemplars um like father gregory boyle you know who does homeboy industries in la i mean you see these radical exemplars of hospitality but again sometimes by pointing to those exemplars you're really putting things out of reach for your average you know, person who has a day job and a mortgage and yeah. a family, like how are they going to live into this radical hospitality? And, and the fact that you, the minute you attach radical to it just, just deflates people. Mm-hmm. So this is going to have to be something a little bit more modest that something can, anybody could do. And so I eventually stumbled across uh, Therese of Lisieux, and that's probably not the way you pronounce her name in French. In Texas, we'd call her Therese of Lisieux. Mm-hmm. Um, the little flower. Just the little that. flower, Yeah. And so I, I discovered her because some, some famous examples of hospitality, like Dorothy Day, mm-hmm. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, um, uh, take her little way as their touchstone. And so I think my discovery of the little way was the thing that allowed me to kind of make this more practical turn. Instead of just diagnose the problems, talk about very practical things we could do to kind of widen the circle of our affections. Yeah. Okay, Mike, I'm going to suck you in on this question. The temptation is to use the radical story, like the Greg, Gregory Boyd story, Boyle, Boyle? Boyle, I think. Yeah, down in L.A., and to use the radical example, and because those work better in sermons, but there seems to be like the counter, like the very uh, opposite reactions which you get where people go, well, I can't do that. Do you ever find that tension of like, you know the story's going to work better because it's a bigger story, but it actually does the very opposite thing of what you're trying to accomplish? Ever since that, yeah, I read something recently about um, the danger of all the missional discussions. Is we tell these dramatic stories, leper yeah. colonies in the Hawaiian Islands, and so yeah. on, and it seems so unattainable that it. Um, we, we find as ministers, we spotlight those stories that are so remarkable. Somebody gave up their career and they did them. We need to tell those stories. But I know my temptation. I taught 15 years at, at, AC, at Abilene Christian University, and those students that went on to these remarkable inner-city ministries, uh, yes, those stories need to be told, but by the same token, you need to tell about those who went on to fairly 
normal lives, but have experienced um, outbreaks of missional living in their own worlds. They, they become hospital there. Uh, for Richard and me, in the background of our church, um, we had an old drunk on staff named Bill Nash, and uh, so much of my life was impacted by Bill. Uh, he'd been sober for decades, but Bill spoke openly to people about um, how all of that had damaged his marriages that had fallen apart and so on. But Richard, I knew people who drove 10 hours to have one hour sitting with Bill because they knew they could be honest. They knew there would be no walls. And, and Bill became kind of a, a spirit to many of us of what it might be like to open up to people who are not like us, or as you get closer, you realize they're closer than they are like us in ways we didn't know. Yeah. Well, I think that's what we like to, one of the things that I talk to churches is whenever we talk about hospitality, again, it's always going to be that other, that other person. It's usually an ethnic person or a socioeconomic, uh, somebody on the poor side of things, on the other side of the railroad tracks. But, you know, to, 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 you know, to Mike's point is, we're, we do a really good job of welcoming people already sitting in our pews. There's a lot of hiding in our pews. And so the people sitting right next to us, we're not even welcoming them very well because we're not being transparent or open. And so, yeah, there is this attraction to somebody who could be radically hospitable um, to the soccer mom or to to the CEO. or You know, like, like there's so much suffering and loneliness in our pews. And, and so I also get churches to think about, don't just think missionally about welcoming that person on the other side of town. Think about, because what are you welcoming them into? You know, you're going to go... Yeah, when you, they come there. When they, they come gonna, there. And yeah, they're going to be in this people kind of, receiving each other. Yeah, it's going to be kind of a fake, superficial, appearance-driven yeah. thing. And, and so there's multiple levels of this, um, what hospitality can look like. So it's not always that missional grand story. Sometimes it is just that cup of coffee and letting somebody tell you a secret that they can't tell anybody and they would drive 10 hours yeah. to find anybody and that would like that. people have dug back down into the success of the early church, they kind of expected to find revivals and great preaching, but what they found was the church uh, was receiving people and they were caring for one another mm-hmm. and that was infectious to their community. I, I remember, Richard, you remember when our church decided to stay where it was rather than move out from the middle of town, but it took some college students to say, hey, would you mind if we just knocked on doors in the neighborhood yeah. and asked people how we can help them? Well, that was a game changer. I'd like to say it came from me. <laughs> you know, It did not come yeah. from the preacher yeah. or the elders or so on. It what was, came from that? Uh, I, I think it led to a whole new way of thinking about church. It, it set the stage for what we later called missional living, but they weren't. They hadn't read the books. They weren't thinking they that. Been. But they, you know, they were young. They knew the story of Jesus, and they just imagined. So, what would it be like if we just started knocking on doors, not inviting people to church, but hey, is there anything we can do for you? Anything we can pray for you? And they developed relationships that lasted many years. Uh, college students wound up doing hospital visits, doing weddings in some instances for people they had met there. And at one level, that's not a dramatic story. You know, mm-hmm. they, did, they yeah. didn't sell all and, mm-hmm. and, and, and go to a leper colony, as noble as that is. They just started right where they were, and they took kindness uh, to those yeah. they met. 
And I, I think that was the, the, the seeds of what eventually became freedom and grace, those, that impulse. Um, and I also think competencies that, that were developed to just walk neighborhoods, because those are still things that Highland does that began back when, you know, Mike was, you know, leading us. And so, yeah, I think those are the, those are the kind of the pioneers of a lot of the things that are happening now. Yeah. And it's, it's getting around the table. It's going to someone's house. How can I pray for you? Who mm-hmm. are you? What's going on? You tell uh, a great story about the, uh, I think it's a jazz musician who single-handedly got dozens of KKK members to leave just by going and getting to know them as a person of color. Yeah. Uh, uh, who was that guy? What was his name? Um, I, I think it's Daryl Davis. I, yeah, that sounds right. I think that's right. And his um, uh, accidental, I think it's accidental courtesy I, I believe is the documentary but yeah as i was writing the book i came across that documentary where he is a african-american and um his his passion is to sit down and break bread with clan members and and uh and many of those he just begins a friendship with him with them and uh, over time many of them have given up and so he has he's collected all these clan robes of former clan members who have left it because mm-hmm. of that relationship and it's that unconditional let's just sit down and have a meal together let's that's the leading edge of hospitality and uh, it's just a radical it it shows that it's a good illustration of Miroslav Volf's will to embrace. Before you see somebody as a Klan member, you see somebody as a Trump supporter, you see somebody yeah. as a Hillary supporter, you see somebody as gay or straight or Baptist or Church of Christ or Muslim or Christian, before you filter people into any sort of social group, you just embrace their humanity. You begin there. And, um, and the transformative effect that can have. And so it's a simple thing, but it's also really revolutionary. And, and you said that the love the sinner, hate the sin doesn't create an ability to do that because you first identify someone as a sinner. You're already filtering through the, they're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and at the minute you've done that, psychologically a process of dehumanization has already occurred. Mm-hmm. Something has been inserted between you and that person's humanity. And so you're always filtering the, them through that category. Yeah. And I, so I think that's one of the reasons why that um, recommendation fail, you know, fails so often. Mm-hmm. And, and when I've asked when I've asked congregations or groups to say, how many of you have seen that work out well? Like, and they often will say, tell a story. You say, well, my brother has an addiction and I hate the addiction, you know, but I, I'm going to walk along beside my brother. What's interesting about those stories is they tend to be family stories that the will to embrace is already there. And then no matter what happens, they're always going to walk alongside that person. So it only tends to work when they're already inside the circle of your affection. Mm-hmm. But normally, that's not what we're talking about. We're usually talking about these sinners as an abstract social group that I mainly lob bombs at on social media. Yeah. And so you, you see them as fellow creatures in the image of God, brothers, sisters, you're on level playing field, and that's good. You talk about in the book the difference of contempt and, and anger in relationships, in a marriage relationship. If you have anger, it's okay, but contempt, that's when it's yeah. headed for divorce. Can you explain the difference of those two? Well, when I talk about discuss psychology in one of the chapters, and that's kind of what mainly Unclean's about. A lot, there's, some people get that. You could tell the Hitler sweater example, and some people understand, okay, I, 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 I get how we, we call people creepy or icky or disgusting or revolting, or we even call people trash. Like I, I kind of get how the idiom of moral contamination gets applied to human beings but they don't some people don't feel like they're on the hook with that they, they don't say i don't feel like massively revolted by people 
But what psychologists know is that the emotion of contempt is very similar to disgust. You know, there's this, there's still that wrinkling of the nose or mm-hmm. the, the sneering at somebody. And it's a very similar emotional system. And so I like to bring in contempt because most people get on the hook on that. I'll say to my coach, okay, maybe you don't feel revolted by people, but how many of you, how many of you think the world is filled with idiots? And at that point, everybody in the room is like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Just, I said, just, feel, just monitor your emotions as you scroll through your social media feed. You're, it's just this feeling of just disdain and scorn and contempt and, and outrage and what is wrong with these people. But the work of John Gottman, which you cite, uh, one of the leading marriage researchers, suggests that contempt is a really dehumanizing emotion, so much so that it is the number one predictor of kind of subsequent divorce. Because when you feel contemptuous of another human being, you're really lowering them. You know, they're, they're not emotionally stable. They're not as, as intelligent as you are. There's something, um, it's a hierarchical emotion. And so anger is actually pretty egalitarian. You can be mad at somebody not to humanize them. Mm-hmm. But to can show contempt or scorn. And I think that's why Jesus goes at it so hard in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you feel contemptuous of your brother or sister, he describes it as like affectional murder. You know, you've killed them uh, in your wow. heart. Um, and, uh, and yet that is what cable news and social media just traffics in. It just, it, it, and, and we just are laying down all this neural circuitry of just outrage. And, 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 uh, and, and so I think that is one of our biggest barriers of hospitality now, particularly in political discourse, is not is keeping the will to embrace without the, the, the contempt seep in. Okay, so you telling yourself in the book about uh, the line, people are idiots, is something that maybe you've muttered under your breath a few times. Yeah, so it's kind of like a life model of mine, people are idiots. Yeah, that's... It's not good. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. Do you think you feel that way more on Sundays in the last eight <laughs> years or so? Is that, <clears throat> is that where maybe that comes from? I don't know. <clears throat> but your son picked up on that, and he said it, and you're like, okay, I need to change something. Yeah, I said it out, out loud, you know, once too often. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, kids are wonderful uh, microphones. They just don't have off switches, <laughs> right, yeah. as my old friend Rex used to say. Yeah, and so your kids mime it back to you and go, okay, there's an issue there. Because when you have contempt, you can't... Okay, so... As you scroll f- through social media feed and uh-huh. you see stuff, you're like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so said this, or you believe mm-hmm. that. How do you how do you register if it's okay, anger, and then dysfunctional contempt? Like, is there a way to go, okay, I'm allowed to be angry because this is wrong, okay? Yeah. But I'm not going to lead to contempt for someone because they support whatever ridic- ridiculous thing. Well, I mean, that is a huge problem because one of the things that hospitality rubs up against is... Um, our righteous indignation, our prophetic rage in the call for justice. And, and, and that, you know, so there is a sense where we should be rightly angry and mm-hmm. rightly outraged. Um, and, and so sometimes my social justice warrior friends are a little leery of this conversation about hospitality. So this kind of like breaking bread with a Klansman mm-hmm. um, is, pushes some buttons because it seems like hospitality means that there is no room for telling the truth, telling uncomfortable truths. And, and so I, w- one of the issues about hospitality is that sometimes, I think even with the missional conversations, we want to fit everything in, into this one little bucket. Like It's like 
what happens with certain books or certain initiatives or certain fads in churches is that you get this hammer and then everything's a nail. Mm-hmm. And so, you're, it, it, so somehow hospitality is going to be the thing that solves everything that's wrong with the world from justice or whatever. And, and so I'd like to say hospitality is doing something very, very specific and particular and that it, um, but it's not the, it's not the, the, it doesn't solve all our problems because mm-hmm. if you have hospitality without truth or you have hospitality without justice, then you have, um, just niceness. And, and we see kind of how that can also can sometimes baptize injustice. Yeah. So, what I like to say is hospitality is uniquely involved in the recognition and the recovery of human dignity. Like that's what its main purpose is, is to recognize and continually recover the human dignity of the person right in front of me. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to yell or protest or set a boundary because conservative liberals set boundaries as much as conservatives. Liberals want to set boundaries to create safe spaces. They say to oppressors, you can't be here right now, or you can't say certain things in this space right now. So, I mean, liberals have boundaries on hospitality, too. Conservatives might have different kind of boundaries on, like, moral, moral or sexual uh, ethics. But, but what both groups need to practice is while they're having these conversations about boundaries so for liberals towards oppressors or let's say conservatives to sexual minorities the labor to recognize and recover the dignity of the people they're talking to that that's where hospitality becomes unconditional that that has to be unconditional the the will to embrace everybody's humanity only then can any of these conversations um be be redeemed yeah. Um, and, and all of us eventually uh, be reconciled with each other. But in both cases, for conservatives and liberals, that is often lost, and so a process of dehumanization sets in. Mm-hmm. You make the connection of kindness and the word kin. Like we often extend kindness to those who are our family, and I think what you're calling us to is a hospitality for all because all are created in the image of God, and mm-hmm. there's a shared humanity in that. Okay, so Mike, as a preacher, as you're hearing this discussion about hospitality and welcoming, um, what do you? How do you see that played out in churches? What do you think it looks like for for us as uh, church people to to extend this sort of hospitality to others? There is an inclination to default to a kind of gated community world mm-hmm. in in all of life, you know. So that um, I'm very protective of where my kids are, what relationships I have, and no matter where I'm working, where I'm in school, if I'm not careful. I'm living in my own self-contained gated community, and I'm a bit of an introvert. And so, mm-hmm. I, yeah. you know, there's some safety. A bit? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. There are those moments, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that I find energy in containing like that. And so you have to intentionally step out. One of the things Richard mentions uh, in the book, and I haven't finished it, but especially in the beginning, I was there were names I was familiar with. And the funny thing is we think of extending them hospitality but the truth is you know i've learned hospitality yeah. from some of them mm-hmm. because they don't have our hang-ups yeah uh mm-hmm. hospitality depends on a level of honesty and uh, reciprocity at times uh, so when i go out intending to be the hospital um 
when I intend to show that hospitality, and I wind up receiving yeah. it because I realize I'm unconditionally received and affirmed by somebody. Mm-hmm. Boy, it, it rocks the world a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to put you back on the, the, the spot here because you've done really good work on the biblical words for host and guest and the yeah. kind of degree of fluidity between them. You want Because I think that's what you're speaking to, is that yeah, who's host and guest a, a, is a little A long confusing. ways that I, I was... Uh, reading in uh, the book of Romans one time, and Paul refers to a house church and said, this person is the xenos, is the Greek word, of, of this little house church. Well, that, that means host, but mm-hmm. that didn't fit because that's our word for the outsider. And so there's a fluidity between the host and the guest. And that's t- true in, in several languages, I came to find out. In Spanish, there's a word for host and guest. It, it depends on the context. Well, that makes a little bit of sense. I saw it in my own father. I'd be away preaching someplace, and my dad would would be there, and yet he'd greet everybody at the front door. He's supposed to be the guest, but he becomes the host, and people are right, yeah. walking in, and they're, you know, they, they have this odd look about, uh-huh. I don't even remember that man. Well, you wouldn't. He's a guest here today. <laughs> but he stepped into the, into the host um, position. But I, I love that. I yeah. love that there is... There is this fluidity between the two terms, because when I step in as host, the next thing you know, I'm the guest. And people, um, all people in areas of ministry have experienced that. Mm-hmm. I, I go to the hospital to visit somebody, and I walk out having been blessed by yeah. them. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Uh, if I ever write a TV show and move to Hollywood, the TV show would be about the, the pastor who thinks he's like giving parishioners guidance, and it turns out that the prisoners are giving him guidance, yeah. which is basically Grey's Anatomy, uh, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I just ripped off the idea from them a decade ago when I used to watch that show with my wife. Um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago on the podcast, I was talking about how at churches we have too much uh, young, pretty people on stage, and we don't have enough death, and lo and behold, you, it's in this book too. Like, you talked about that, because <clears throat> I stole that idea from you. Like, you were consulting a big mega church, yeah. and your critique, which you referenced in the book, was, uh, yeah, there's no death on stage, because we, we continue to um, uphold the same values that are in uh, the American culture, in the Christian yeah. culture, and the church looks the same. Uh, so I've got a, a guest coming up on the podcast who, um, he's like... Um, Pastor to the, like the celebrities, like Justin Bieber's pastor. Oh yeah, okay. I've, seen, I think I've seen him. So I'm Carl's going to be on uh, in a week or two, and I think there needs to be a place for that, like yeah. for someone to be able to pastor those people. Because honestly, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I don't feel like the three of us could pastor to Justin Bieber. I don't feel like we have the skill set to be to, to speak into that world. And so there needs to be someone who can do that. Right. I was Richard's pastor. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that's the extent of my ability right there. That's as far out as I can read. <laughs> Fair enough. That's basically the same thing. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, rock stars of different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, such someone has longer hair. I mean, that <laughs> probably was easier to see then. Yeah. How, so there's a sense that you have to be able to speak the language. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to, mm-hmm. you guys talked about being able to speak Spanish when you're doing, uh, interacting with some friends who only speak Spanish. You need to learn how to speak the language. In a language that, or in a culture that uh, idolizes that, in some ways you can't speak unless you have that. But at the same time, how do you be a countercultural voice in a world that's trying to drink something that ultimately will, will poison them? And I think that's what the youth obsessed, obsessed culture will do. Yeah. No, no, I get that. I think I think we're all, we're all evangelists to certain, you know, um, 
to a certain local context and mm. we have certain capacities. And so I, I totally agree with all of that. Yeah. But the, the, the point, the point about that deathless comment, it comes out of the slavery of death book. Um, but it's basically the idea that disgust isn't just directed towards, uh, uh, people who are engaged in moral infractions, but there's an existential aspect to discuss that it pushes away reminders of our our neediness and our dependency and eventually our mortality. And so we have that same um, expulsive or repulsive um, attitude towards anybody who reminds us of the needs and the failures of the body. So senior yeah. citizens, people with disabilities, mental illness, poverty, handicap all those kinds of things um and 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 so there's a sort of what uh psychologists call the pornography of death about our culture where death is um, an illicit subject it's it's not for polite society and anybody who reminds us of that the needs of the body um the failures of the body become they're uncomfortable in our spaces and so America has this kind of denial of death culture where we like to present a youthful, optimistic, flawless, needless um, kind of a culture. And I think it goes back to the inauthenticity because the goal then in such a church is to show no need, to have no vulnerabilities, to hide, to be fine. Everybody's, that's the ethic that you have to, that's the American success ethic. You have to be self-sufficient. And if you aren't, if you need help, that's the most shaming thing for us. And a church that is driven by that kind of delusional um, life, that pretending, um, isn't ever going to be a hospitable community. So again, this hospitality thing is about empathy and vulnerability. And, and this is where I think somebody like Brene Brown's work is really good. Because I think you can bring in a big conversation about shame here and, and the way it's causing us to and not welcome each other because mm-hmm. we're not giving each other an opportunity to welcome each other because of the shame. Yep. Yep. That's good. All right, Mike, I'll let you close this out with the final word. Um, true or false. <laughs> the reason that Richard thinks God is strange, direct quote from the book is because of the guy who followed you at Highland. True or false? It's going to get you to go on record. Yeah. The interim minister? The interim minister. That is so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I, I do appreciate, Richard, uh, all the stuff you're writing. I, I'm amazed um, at the audience it's having out there, and uh, I think it's having a great impact. Wow, thank you. Well, well, we're at Highland because of Mike Cope. We, we shopped around all the churches, mm-hmm. and we wanted a little church. And Highland was a big, you know, bigger church, mm-hmm. and we couldn't find one. And we said, the one thing we like, we like to listen to Mike Cope, so we're going to go to Highland. And so that's why we went. Well, the yeah. winter Christians can gather together. Yeah, we can gather together. <laughs> we occasionally pushed out of winter. We'd get autumnish maybe oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You get totally. autumnish on Easter Sunday, <laughs> totally. But the rest of the year, yeah, it's springy. Yeah, well, I I feel like I became a I've I started to value that more I think because of my time at Highland yeah. and I I find myself leaning towards that. You, Richard talks about in the book about going to the prisons and wanting to do the deconstruction stuff in the morning and the lament and they're like, hey, we already get that. Can we do something else? But I think the flip side of that is for like the middle class life where everything is good, mm-hmm. uh, you need some of that lament to to be honest about no this isn't the whole human experience and i don't think i would have gotten that if i wasn't a part of highland so i do appreciate yeah. that and i think that's a big location of hospitality the summer and the winter christians 
often they don't welcome each other well. Mm-hmm. And, and they find each other kind of alien and weird, which is why I think the language... don't understand each other. Right. And so, which is why I think the language is helpful, because it helps us yeah. kind of name it and normalize it and, and, and welcome each other in, in the diversity of the church. Because it's really hard to build a church on top of winter Christians. You know, we're, we're like, <laughs> somebody, somebody in the room needs to believe something. Somebody needs to yeah. kind of have some energy and, 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 and say to everybody, say, Jesus is risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Don't forget it. You're like, thank yeah. you. Thank you for, you know, I mean, you need somebody there. And so I think you need, but I think you need the winter Christian to keep that from getting too too optimistic and out of touch with reality and i think winter christians do bring the lament so we need we need everybody um but again we gotta we gotta embrace embrace their distinct gifts yeah but for for some if you don't acknowledge that there is a winter too you're just written off as being shallow and superficial because you don't have all of it included Mm -hmm. all right mike Thank you. We roped you in. I just wandered in. <laughs> and we got you here. So thank you. Yeah. Richard, Stranger God, well done. Thank you. Mom, thanks for, for approving. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>